Psalm 1. In the honor of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read this psalm. And we look at it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the way of the wicked, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for, Lord, just what it teaches us, what it shows us, and Lord, what we can look to in our lives with your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So we look at psalms, there are 150 different psalms, these are songs that were, were sung and they have different things. We'll look next week. There's a bit of a messianic component to Psalms 2, talking about Christ. But here in Psalm 1, it is, as you can kind of tell just by gr- briefly looking at it, if you're not familiar with this psalm, it talks about the life of blessing. That's what it starts out there. Blessed is the man. And then it gives this description of things that are a part of a blessed life. And so it's important for us as we look at this psalm and we try to unpack it to start right with the very first word and make sure we understand what it means when it says, blessed is the man. What does it mean to be blessed? We use that word a lot. Since moving to the south, I've learned it comes in the phrase, bless his heart, which isn't necessarily, I think, the biblical meaning of bless, but hey, maybe. And you say bless you when somebody sneezes. I don't really even know where that began, or gazunheit, or whatever it is that you say, but blessed. In Hebrew, it's the word here, asher, which was one of the tribes. My son has got that name. There's others that have that name, and it means to an extent to be happy, but there's even a little bit more to it than just happiness in the way what we think of it as happy. And really, in this, there's almost a, an exclamation sense about it. It's, it's almost, you're overjoyed when you, you say this word. It's an aha moment. There's an observation. It, it would be much like, say, you went to the mall, or you went to the airport, or you went somewhere. I don't know if I set this up right, so there we go. If you sat down and you just started observing people, and you started to watch them, and you could somehow look into their lives and examine things that go on in their homes, things that went on at their workplace, and just to see their lives... And observe somebody and you see a particular set of characteristics that we're going to look at and you go, aha, there it is. There's the blessed person. It's almost, yes, there's a sense of of commands, things that we should do in here, but also there's a sense of this is the natural outflow of somebody who has, in our case, has accepted the gospel, has turned to Christ. They're following Jesus. He's the Lord of their life. This is what they can expect. This is the life that, that characterizes them, that we see they're planted by the streams of water and yield its fruit in its season. It's something that teaches us, listen, when, when God's mercy is poured out, when we are, are where God wants us to be, this is what we should expect. And so as we, we look at this word, we look at this psalm, and really if you look through the psalms, you'll see this word over and over. It shows us this type of life. And if you're anything like me, this is something that I'd I'd like to see in my life. And so let's look at what the psalmist here talks about, this blessed 
person, what he observed. Well, the first thing that we notice in the first verse is what not to do. Sometimes that's the best place to begin, you know, just this, this isn't it. So, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, walks in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. If you notice the three verbs that are used there, each one is a, a deeper level of commitment, so to speak. There's walking, standing, and sitting. I go to a, a number of conferences as a pastor. Probably you have gone to conferences maybe in, in your line of work. And when you go to these conferences, there's big exhibit halls where they advertise everything. And for a pastor, it usually has to do with Bible studies, church signs or buses or trips. There's all sorts of things, schools. And you walk down these exhibit halls, and every few feet there's a new booth or advertising something. And at first you just walk. You're just looking at things, and you're not really committed, and you're really hoping that you don't make eye contact with somebody you don't want to talk to. So you just kind of glance, and when they look your way, you look this way. And you're just kind of going along walking. But then you might come to one that you actually want to know a little bit more about, and you stop and you stand there. And you begin to take it all in. And then some of these booths are really big. If you're really into it, they'll have a seat, and you can sit down. And I guarantee if you sit down, somebody's going to come and talk to you because they know you're interested in what they're talking about. And the psalmist uses these three verbs, and he he could do whatever he wants, but he is inspired by God to say, this is what's not in the life of a blessed person, somebody who walks in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. And this progression, you look at that first one, walks in the counsel of the wicked. This is somebody going along in life, and what is their counsel? What are they taking in? We live in a day and age where there's so much information, so many places where we can get ideas about this world, how we should live, how we should function. For younger people, people in their teens or getting into their 20s, they're taking in all sorts of information and beginning to make decisions about their faith, their beliefs, what's going to form their lives, and what kind of counsel are they taking in? Is it good or is it Wicked. And then as you progress, it stands in the way of sinners. Notice it says the way of sinners. As you go through life and as you're beginning to, to hear all of this different information, all of this counsel, at some point you kind of pick a way of life. You pick a pattern and you see this, this way of sinners. If you notice the last line of this psalm, the way of the wicked, it talks about this way, this path, this, this trajectory of our lives. And as you stand there, you know, and you're walking and then you stop and you stand, you begin to, to kind of decide which way my life is going to go. And there are those, they're not blessed, they're in the way of sinners. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. And then you get to the last one. They sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are those that become aware of the word of God. They know what it has to say, but at this point they have entered a level of of ridicule of the word of God. They no longer just are kind of going or indifferent to the word of God, but at this particular point now they know how one should live, but they, they, they are condescending toward it. So they're actually acting against it. One of the ways that, that, that this particular verse is so easily outlined is in Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I want you to just, you can turn there for a minute or just listen. I want you to hear this, what Paul says at the very beginning of this book. Paul writes to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 1, the last part of this chapter, I come back to it quite a bit as I observe our world that we live in today. Because Romans chapter 1 is such a a perfect picture of it. 
In verse 18, he, or sorry, verse 21, Paul writes this. You can start anywhere, but I'm going to start in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here you see something similar to what we saw at that first. They're walking the counsel of the wicked. They, they know a little bit about God, but they don't honor him. They go the way of the world. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. You'll see that phrase a lot in Romans 1. God gave them up. He lets them indulge their desires. He gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped the, and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. You see that word again. To dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Then notice verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There is this list of all of these activities, and it says at the end, not only do they become aware that they shouldn't do these things, this isn't how God wants it to be, they approve of these things going on. They encourage people to engage in them. And if you go back to Psalm 1, how does it end? Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The end result of getting to the end of wickedness is there. You know what God says. You don't care. And in fact, you encourage people to go against it. And as I think of Psalm 1 and I think of this blessed life and just as I observe things and I see so much just sometimes even with age. I see young people and there's such a they, they seem so much in the walks and the counsel of the wicked. They have this, they're going through life, they're beginning to form those foundations of life, where their life is headed. And my, my challenge to young people today, if you want to have a blessed life, if you want what Psalms is about to talk about here, be careful what you're taking in. Be careful of what you're listening to. Be careful of the influences that you spend a great deal of time bringing into your life. As you get a little bit further along and then stand in the way of sinners, what is your way? The, the path of your life. I see even for a lot of folks that come to church, they sit here. I mean, they can check it off the list. I've been there. I've done the thing that I'm supposed to do. But is your life characterized by the way of God, as we're going to see in verse 2? Is it characterized by a life of repentance, of Christ being the head of your life? Or is this just something that you do because you're a good southern Christian person? And then you even can get to that part of the seat of scoffers that people can become so indifferent. I, I turn on and I watch pastors that go and, at the ribbon cutting of a Planned Parenthood and I scratch my head and go, what in the world? 
So what not to do to have a blessed life? Well, verse 1 outlines it. And then verse 2 tells us what to do. What is a part of a blessed life? This is what we want to focus a little bit on. But his delight, the blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. There's two points to that. Delight, pleasure, and then meditation. Start with the word delight. It's an interesting word. One of the places that we see it that helps us understand it was when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon. And when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon and he, you know, explained all of his great wisdom to her, before she left to go back, the Bible says Solomon said, listen, you can have anything you want, the pleasure of your eyes or the delight of your eyes. And at that time, Solomon had everything the world had to offer in his kingdom. And so anything that just just struck her fancy, that was hers to take. And here that word is used to describe how the blessed person sees the law of the Lord. How they, 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 they take delight in it. They have pleasure in God's word. And then in the second part, they meditate on it day and night. Meditate's a, a neat word. It means to murmur. Do you ever see somebody that kind of talks to themselves? This may be you. You know, you just kind of walk along. You know, you just kind of... That's where that word kind of comes from. It's somebody that, that looks at something and they just kind of... But they're running it over in their head. They're thinking it through. It's not just that they go to the Word of God, they read it, or they just even just study it, but they're making it a part of their life. And when you read this verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here in the second verse of the opening psalm, it would go back to one of the, the chief commands of God to his people when they came out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. In Joshua chapter 1 Verse 8, as Joshua has now assumed the the leadership of the nation of Israel, it says this in the first chapter, in the eighth verse, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And where God speaks to Joshua there is just a reiteration of what he said to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 17, where over and over God says to his people, this is my law, meditate on it, make it a part of your life. For us, in the New Testament, when when this was written here, Psalm 1, it would have probably just been the first five books of the Bible. We have it all, but we also have Christ. I think in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says something that just makes you think. He says, I seek to know nothing but Christ and him what? Crucified. Now, does that mean that's all? He's just going to study Christ and his crucifixion? It doesn't mean that. It's a, it's a Hebrew way of hyperbole to, to make a huge point. But his point basically is this. Like, I, my life is set up to know Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, what that means, what the implication is for every aspect of my life. It would be the New Testament delight in the law of the Lord, and meditate on it day and night, to delight in Christ and Him crucified, and what that means, what we sang about this morning. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. And it's more, like I said, more than just studying. It's taking this and making it a part of my life. We've been doing basketball. My sons are playing basketball right now, and we go to practice. And you don't just go to practice to just run the drills to run the drills to just do layups or to pass or whatever. You're doing those things to prepare you for what? The game. 
So you know what to do when things are, are available for you at the game. We delight in the law of the Lord. We delight in the word of God, not just for the sake of study. But we meditate on it so that it becomes a part of who we are. Remember what he said, blessed is the man. This is the, the, the key saying to those that God has poured his grace and mercy, the life of sanctification becoming more like Christ, delighting and meditating Christ and him crucified. And then in verse 3, it gives us the results of that, what we're, we're looking to get. He is like a, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. When I was in Tennessee, and if you go east of here, you see it's flat. Just there's not a hill to be found really anywhere. And there are lots of huge fields. And you would look out on these big, giant fields, and there'd be, you know, wheat or corn or whatever it is they're growing. Sometimes there'd be a line of trees. And whenever I would see those line of trees, I knew that there was a little creek bed. And the creek bed, the water that would be in it would feed the roots for these trees so that they could stand up. I mean, they're out there in this field. There are, you know, tornadoes and windstorms and things that come through. But these trees stood there. They were planted firmly. And the psalmist uses this picture. This is a dry, arid climate where there's not a lot of water. There'd be few trees. But the ones that were by these streams of water, they were firm. They had what they needed. There's a steadfastness of the blessed life because of what we have when we meditate on Christ. I think of what John wrote or what Jesus said in John chapter 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. You remember this? If you abide in me, and this is a picture of that abiding. We're nourished by Christ. We study his word. We meditate on his word. We go over it in our minds and we apply it to our lives. And we see this. It becomes this foundation in our lives. So that as we face this world with all of the, the wicked counsel and the ways of sinners and all of the scoffers, we will have what we need when we need it. That's why he says there in the second part of verse 3, it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He's pointing to the tree and that at the right time, the fruit comes. I occasionally plant things that I like to, to grow and eat. And, you know, this is about a month or so is when you start to get those ready. I actually planted the seeds in my house. So I have this little light set up above these little seed plants. And people think I'm growing drugs, but it's not drugs. It's, they're <laughs> edible. But you start, and really it's going to be months before they're ready to go. When they first have the, you know, green peppers or tomatoes, those little, the buds start to come out, the blooms start to come out. You, you know you can't pick them there. You have to wait. But they'll be ready at the right time. And for somebody who is, is blessed by God, who is meditating on Christ and him crucified, and that's becoming a part of their life, you have what you need when you need it. I, I, as a pastor, get, you know, I don't know if I say I get to, but I go to the hospital to visit people quite a bit. And I've been there when people die or as they're approaching death. And I've seen folks that are, are, have that blessed, what I see here in Psalms 1. And there they are, they're facing death. They may be, you know, their body is completely failing. It's shutting down. There's not much time left. And, and although there's a, a sadness, a concern, those that they have faith when they need it. They have strength to face what is about to come, and they have it when they need it because they've been planted firmly. They have patience when they need it. Even this week, I had an incident with somebody that kind of tried my patience. I wanted to, you know, in the flesh, say a few things and do, you know, what, but, 
That happens to pastors too. But at the time, there was just there's the sense of the Holy Spirit saying, listen, keep your mouth shut. Just zip it. You have it when you need it. You have wisdom in a world where things just don't seem to make sense. This week, the talk of the nation, amongst other things, was a commercial put on by a company that makes razor blades. Gillette. If you haven't seen it, you can watch it all about men. And there's all sorts of opinions and thoughts about that. But as you study and you meditate and you know Christ, you begin to look at the things of our culture and you begin to say, I can approach this from a biblical standpoint. I'm not shaken. You have what you need. You have fruit that comes in its season. That is a blessed life. That's why it says, in all that he does, he prospers. It's not about money. It's not about riches. One of the richest guys in the world, Jeff Bezos, who started Amazon, his marriage and everything is falling apart. His prosperous life didn't help him out there. Prosperity is becoming more like Christ. It's seeing a life measured by that. And here the psalmist is pointing that out. That is what we can expect. And so he he outlines what not to have in your life, what to have in your life, the delight, the meditation of God's word and what it results in. And then he finishes it off in the last part with the results of a wicked life. He says, the wicked are not so. They're not like a tree planted by the streams of water. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. In that culture, what they would do when they would grow the grain, they would harvested and they would take it to an area where it was kind of up on a hill and there were strong winds that would blow through and they would take the grain and they would beat it on the ground and the heavy grain that they they needed to eat would stay on the ground and they could collect that but the chaff the leftover part of the stalk or whatever of the plant would kind of float up in the air and blow away it was dry it was dead it was worthless and it's an image that the psalmist knew everybody who read this would understand it they said listen You want a complete contrast from a tree planted by a stream of water is the chaff that has no root. And I see this in the life of of people that don't have Christ. As long as everything's pretty good, they're pretty good. They got a job. They got their health. Their family's okay. They can kind of get along. Our society has a lot of things in it to kind of keep you comfortable and keep you going in the right direction. But let a health crisis come, let a divorce, let a affair, adultery, let the, a child, drugs, whatever, things explode. There is no foundation. There's no stream providing the sustenance. You're chaff, and it just gets carried away. Drugs, alcohol, affairs, midlife crisis, all of these things are the result of being chaff. And the psalmist recognizes that. Remember what I said. He's sitting there watching all of these people, seeing everything. He was observing everything going on in their lives. And he says, listen, one is like a tree. And he sees it. He goes, aha, that's the blessed one. This one, these ones over here, this group over there. The little things come and they disappear. They have no firm foundation. And so the question that we ask ourselves as we examine our lives that person was observing you, would they go, aha? Would they go, there's a blessed life? Where there is somebody who exemplifies God's blessing, 
God's grace and mercy in their life. They have what they need when they need it. Their life is prospering. They're becoming more like Christ. Or when they look at you and say, well, there's more chaff here today, gone tomorrow. Verses 5 and 6 then kind of bring it all together. The psalms are often, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of poetry and music, and the beginning and the end, it starts off with blessed, and then it ends, you know, with, or the next verse is all about the way of the wicked, and it gets back to the wicked here. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There is a picture here somewhat of the wicked will not stand in the judgment. It means at the time of judgment they go to, it's almost like somebody going to the courthouse. And you're, you know, you're, you're arrested, you're facing the judge, they have your fingerprints, they have your DNA, they have a video, and you don't even have a lawyer. You know, you're representing yourself, you're one of those. And you're standing before the judge, you have nothing to stand on. You are guilty. The wicked whose lives have been dedicated to the way of sin and the wickedness, someday they will stand in the judgment, and they can't stand in the sense that they have nothing to fall back on. They don't have Christ. They don't have an advocate. They don't have all of those things that we sang about that Jesus did for us. And it says they won't be in the congregation of the righteous. It's that picture of Revelation 7. Well, there was a multitude that no one could number. Every tribe, tongue, and nation singing praises. The wicked aren't there. And then the final verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This final compare and contrast of the ways of both. And that first part, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, is interesting. It really, in the Hebrew, it says, for the Lord is knowing. There's a sense of an ongoing relationship of God knowing the path of those he's blessing. He knows what's going on in our lives. You know, there's the saying that we see that Jesus, you know, God knows the number of hairs on your head. And everyone usually chuckles when a guy like me says that. Because you go, that's not all that impressive. But the whole point with that phrase, God knows the number of hairs on your head, is, is really, who cares? I mean, does anybody really need to know how many hairs are on your head? But the idea behind that is such a, a, a pointless thing, God still knows it. He's that intimately concerned with who you are that he knows that simple fact, a fact that no one else could know and no one else would take the time to try to know. And if he knows that about your way, he knows the bigger things. He knows what you're facing right now. He knows what's coming up tomorrow and the next day and February and March and at the end of the year and all of the little things that you're on your heart that you are concerned about. The Lord is knowing the way of the righteous. The blessed man rests firm that God knows my way. He knows what I'm going through. I am planted firmly by the stream of water and I know I will have what I need when I need it. I may not know about it right now. I may be scratching my head wondering, but I trust in God that when time comes... I will have it. But the way of the wicked, notice it's not the wicked, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked, the way so many have dedicated their lives, they have walked in the, or yes, walked in the counsel of the wicked, stood in the way of sinners, and sat in the seat of scoffers. They've formed their life around this. That way has no eternity to it. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Charles Spurgeon one of the great preachers of the past couple of centuries, said this about the final verse. 
And you see, he compared it. He said, listen, the way of the righteous, it's the, as God looks at us, he's making us like, like a plow going through a field. And it pushes back the dirt. And it pushes back the dirt for a reason, so that you can plant something. So that there will be something that will grow and it will produce fruit and it will have sustenance and it will provide something and it has meaning and purpose and, and God is, is doing something that has an eternal value there. And he says, that's the way of the righteous, but he, the way of the wicked is more like a boat going through water. It goes through the water and just like a plow, it pushes the water back. It looks like a lot is going on. There could be a huge wake, but after a very short period of time, what happens to the water? It comes right back, and it's as if the boat never went through. It's perfectly still again. And the blessed man looks at this world and all of the wickedness that goes on, all of the way of this world, and realizes eventually it has no eternal purpose or point. It's gone. Everything from from, from what Eve did And Adam, in the Garden of Eden, when when, when all of that began to spread, Christ came, he died on the cross so that the way of the righteous, we can have an eternity with him, and sin will be no more. And so it goes back to the very beginning, blessed is the man, and it starts out with this simple truth. For those of us on this side of the gospel, is Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives? Have we turned our life over to him because this will become the characterization of your life? You will delight in his word. You will meditate on it. You will know Christ and him crucified, and it will transform your life. For those of us that are followers of him, we say, Pastor, man, I I struggle sometimes. You ask that question, do I delight in his law? Do I meditate on it day and night? And I'm like, whoa. The beauty of Christ is then you come back and you say, God, I've struggled a little bit. I'm, I'm repenting of that. Give me that desire. Give me that passion to delight in your word. He will. That's the beauty of it. He wants to know you more. He wants you to know his word more. He wants you to know Christ and him crucified. Pray and ask him to do that. Ask him to continue to reveal himself more and more each and every day. We will have the bumps. Some days are better than others. But we'll be on the way to the life of blessing. We'll be on the way to the life where we're we're sitting there or somebody else is sitting there watching us live, watching us go, and they say, aha, There is somebody that knows Christ. There is somebody that knows Christ and him crucified. There is somebody whose faith is there when they need it. Would you bow your heads this morning? 